Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. Today on the podcast is Scott MacArthur. With over 300 stories in his backpack, mixing and matching them to be relevant to his corporate audience, professional keynote speaker and storyteller Scott MacArthur was forced by the pandemic to turn his hands to refocus. As the archaeologist of his own life, switching to broadcasting and music, Scott now continues to focus on the most important number in life, 28,000, which is the average number of days someone lives. Scott uses only this one measure in his life, as what is not worth doing is not time well spent. On today's podcast, we dive into the importance of storytelling, how to set up everything for Zoom calls and for speaking to people at scale in a digital world. And we also dive into some of the most important things around attention to detail and preparing before you do anything. Hey, Scott, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm a bit, I'm a bit, I've got a bit of man flu, but apart from that, I'm okay. I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, you, you sound fantastic. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm really excited to jump into actually a number of topics that I know you're very passionate about that I'm also passionate about. Um, but, yeah. you know, before we get there, uh, it'd be great if you could just explain to everybody listening what your background is and, and you know, what you're doing at the moment. Oh God, yeah, yeah, I'm getting on a bit now. So you'd be, you could be here all day. Just talking about it. I mean, I, I started all. I grew up in in just outside Glasgow, uh, and then I uh, was the first person in my family to escape the the sort of the train that was that we were all on. It was always the same type of job for everybody. Um, part of my family were fishermen, the other part were in the navy, and then steel heavy industries. And I managed to escape that, and I might come back to that later on how it happens. But uh, I ended up. Going to university and studying science. I wanted to be a scientist and then I became a scientist. Uh, worked for three years doing arthritis research and a bit of uh, Alzheimer's uh, research. I think we've got some common background there, actually, Alex. Uh, then I jumped because I was living in a squat with six women and they were driving me mad. Um, and I decided to just take any job I could get. Uh, and I fell into one of the utility companies. Back then it was called British Gas, uh, which I, I then had a fantastic career with them. I really enjoyed it and eventually ended up in, in HR. And that career developed over the next 10 years. And I finished my HR career as an HR director, having worked in leisure, uh, manufacturing, service industries, leisure industries. I then became a, a bit of a consultant, joined KPMG, uh, and I had 10 I would say glorious years with them, hard work all over the world, um, probably culminating and in being involved in the Beijing and the London Olympics quite heavily. So that was two of the things I, I'm quite proud of those moments uh, from my time in consulting. And then about almost exactly 10 years ago, I, I came out of that and formed my own uh, business um, to do consulting uh, along with my partner, Samantha. However, in the first year of that, I, I got into the music industry and we ended up producing a musical and that absorbed me for about 18 months and we had 9,000 people turned up for that so that was quite quite interesting wow. but, uh, but about three years ago I decided I had had enough of the consulting work because I'd been doing it for a long long time and I moved into professional speaking and uh, that led me to keynote all over the world with everybody from Apple to IBM to 
to the banks to you know again back in China again for a for a cement company believe it or not in Australia etc. So that was that was terrific. Um, but then COVID arrived and like a lot of people in my industry, our, our books fell apart uh, and we had to decide what to do next. I didn't really know what to do. I didn't want to go back into consulting. Uh, so I started broadcasting, just started broadcasting. I didn't have the camera, the lights, anything. Um, and since then, I've done over 400 hours of, of live broadcasting, two different types, one about storytelling and the other one about music. Uh, the music one has taken off. I've got um, 11,500 members of our Facebook group now. That's growing 100 people a week, which is just incredible. I mean, for a, a bit, it's very niche, Alex. It's a bit Glasgow, so it's very niche. Um, but we've done, yeah, it's, it's been an, a, an amazing thing. Just during, we had 4,000 members before lockdown. So the last two years we've, we've grown, tre- uh, you know, trebled in size. And I'm very proud of that. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, and at the moment, my, my work is mainly focused on everything I've done before. So I'm a, an ambassador for Twycross Zoo. Um, I've just taken on a job as a, a non-exec director for a talent company up in Scotland. Um, I'm working, obviously, doing live delivery. I do uh, live live events. I do live um, uh, teaching courses. And I spend a lot of my time still speaking. So I, you know, I, I spread myself around a little bit. Um, and I, I'm also a columnist in one of the leading HR uh, online magazines. So I, I've got my finger in all these pies. It's what turns me on. So that's me, Alec. Amazing. Well, there's, there's so much that we can talk about, uh, especially on the background of, of HR. And I know you've given keynotes yeah. across leadership and, and, and all yeah. sorts. But but actually, one of the things I just want to start off uh, talking about is, as you mentioned, the transition to everything being online on the back of COVID. Yeah. And I've commented to you just before we started recording that uh, when I was yeah. preparing for this call and making my uh, this recording and making my notes, um, one of the things that I absolutely love on your website is um, you've got this fantastic video which really outlines how Zoom can not look that great. Let's just say with <laughs> with, with you know some of the you know, some of their tech and actually how yeah. you can put together a really yes. high performing. Um, you know, visual display, I, I guess, is what you describe as a performance, um, you know, yes. whether you're giving a keynote or whether you're just doing a, a team meeting or a sales call. So I was just wondering exactly. if you could sort of you know, dive into some of that uh, just before we sort of, you know, touch yeah. on some of the HR topics. Well, where it came from, uh, I mean, I've always prided myself in being a, a very good speaker and I practice and I, you know, I, I always say I practice to the point that I can ad lib. Yeah. So I really know my material. Um, but when I saw the beginnings of the sort of the online world developing before COVID, not 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 just because of COVID, but slightly before COVID, I, I noticed the standards were extremely average. Um, um I have had enough of seeing people's nasal hair. I have enough of you know, green screens are I would just not use them. They're, they're, they've got a limited use in my opinion. There are some cases when they're useful, but most of the time they're not useful. People don't look right. Uh, people don't have the right gear. Uh, and I just thought at the time, you know, well, why is this? And I think it's people just think, don't don't think, actually. They, they could easily be much better online than they actually are. But, I mean, I was on a course last week and not a single one of the speakers had set the room up, had thought about what they looked like, had thought about what they sounded like. So it's a real advantage, you know, to, to, to if you're going to be online, do it well. Um, and it isn't that difficult. You don't, I mean, I've got some friends that went crazy and spent like, you know, literally £50,000 on building studios that they've never used. 
um, you know, you don't need to spend a lot of money. You just need to make sure what you've got, you use it properly. And I think that's the thing that I certainly encourage my clients, my contacts, just use it properly. You know, better to get a good mic than as a good camera, which is quite often not understood. But uh, but apart from that, you know, just be a little, be thoughtful about your audience rather than just turning up with the camera pointing up your nose um, and just looking unprofessional. I still think we need to look professional. Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've, we've seen um, obviously a big, shift in, in how sort of sales calls are conducted uh, but also yeah, internal yeah. team meetings and things like that and you know if, if, if you were advising say any you know fortune 500 company or corporate or even you know startup um w- what are some of the things that you would say you know make these changes and it will revolutionize how you do things that aren't going to break the bank so what i would suggest to people is just to think about the user experience and we all know, and a lot of us are scared of it. You know, PowerPoint isn't a good thing. You know, too many visuals is not a good thing. Uh, you know, just going through bullet points is not a good thing. And it's even, and I think it's 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 magnified online. So what I always say to 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 my uh, you know people I'm mentoring and coaching in this area in particular is make it as simple as possible, and then think about something you can do to make you look different to everybody else and that's not like a lot of people have turned into performing clowns you know there's an awful lot of them are you know they're all doing their you know they're funny dancing around and cracking jokes i'm not really into that either but very simple things one of the things i do it doesn't work particularly well on a podcast i like but is i like uh, artifacts so behind me you can see there's a there's shelves with things sitting on the shelves and what i do with clients in that respect i say to them look if you're talking about something, bring an example onto the screen and show it to people. So I'm showing you a snow globe that's got all the snow trickling over someone's brain. That's what it's like when you're, 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 you're busy and your attention is distracted. But through meditation and other practices, your brain suddenly clears. So it's using that sort of thing that really, I mean, it's quite visual and that's not great for a podcast, but um, using props appropriately, don't use too many visuals. Keep it simple, and that's a long. That's a that's a phrase we've had in industry for many many decades, and it's still appropriate. Just keep it simple. Um, in my music broadcast, what we do there is we're quite careful with that because we basically have it chunked into distinct parts. So we almost signal to the audience, look, in the next five minutes, we're going to do this segment, and it might be you know who played in Glasgow this week in the nineteen eighties. Then the second piece would be you know you know who's got a memory from a particular gig they were at uh, in this particular place. The third, so it's, all, it's quite carefully segmented. Editors love you if you do that. Love you. Because it's so easy for them to chop up your, 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 what you're, you're recording. And the second thing, and we've just demonstrated it, um, you might not include it in the podcast, but my son just interrupted us. And what we both did without thinking about it is we both paused and that pause not only gets the attention of the audience, it also means the editor can much easy, much more effectively chop up anything you're recording for a client, for a colleague, or for your family <laughs> a lot easier. So there's things like that you pick up quite quickly. So you don't need to be a professional broadcaster, but just be aware of what your audience needs to understand what you're trying to say to them. And then the final thing, uh, uh, the fi- sorry, the final thing is that I've learned over the years, and we'll probably come back to this, that... It's facts tell you stuff, but it's stories that sell you stuff. And I think jumping into the storytelling as soon as you can is critical. 
Well, that, that was going to be one of the things I was just going to touch on, which is um, that storytelling element is so powerful. And I think it's, yeah. it's something that's actually very difficult in, um, you know, my experience for people to yeah. teach. Um, yes. Because some people it comes naturally to, I think certainly for someone like myself with the sort of a very science background who's, yeah. uh, you know, grown up training it for, for, to be a doctor, you yes. often are bombarded with lots of technical jargon and information, uh, which yes. is then very difficult to sort of put into simple terms. And, um, yeah. you know, what one of my sort of favorite humans is, is Richard Feynman, who was known as the great explainer. And, and he you know, took some of these things in quantum physics and just put, you know, either these visuals or explain things in such simple terms that, uh, you know, his, his whole mantra was, you know, can a, a child understand what you're saying? And if they can't, either you don't understand it properly enough or you're not communicating effectively enough. Yes. With that element of storytelling, how do you sort of teach people how to be a good storyteller? Feynman was also one of my heroes. The other one was Carl Sagan. And I think both of them at that time, the world was very lucky to have those two great people trying to communicate science. The scientific community didn't like them doing it which is another topic, but nevertheless, they were very important. So I think for me, the starting point is to get people to think about their own story. So I ask people to become an archaeologist of their own life. And where this really started for me was, again, during lockdown, I had stories I told, you know, when I was doing a keynote or I was doing training, I had stories I told for years, but maybe only had 10 or 20 stories that I told. And I thought, well, I need more than that. So to become an archaeologist of your own life, you, you, you need to think back and, 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 and literally investigate and try and remember your own life, which sounds easier than it is uh, in reality, as you just hinted at, Alec, because what I had to do, I, I got a spread, and it's really science but I got a spreadsheet, and I did all the years of my life along the top, and then I wrote the stories, you know, in the boxes along the different years and I very quickly ran out of stories and I thought right what am I going to do so what I did was I went onto Wikipedia not more scientific than that I just went onto Wikipedia and I wrote down in each year something significant that happened so you know the death of Princess Diana the year Scotland won the football world cup I'm a fantasist um you know whatever happened in the particular year I wrote them down and that started to trickle my memory you know, so in 1978, when I was young and, and Scotland, we were in the World Cup and we got beat by uh, by some terrible countries like Peru and Iran, and, but we beat Holland. It was very weird. Um, I then started to think about, right, what do I remember that year? And I started to write down my stories from that year, then on to the next year, the next year. And what I've now got is I've got this massive spreadsheet with over 400 stories on it. And I and I, I do it like pick and mix, you know. I, if, I've, if I'm asked to speak about something, I'll have a look at that and I'll say, well, that story there really fits for what the, the client needs me to talk about over here. And possibly the best example of all this, it's not one of my stories. It was one of my uh, one of my guests, and we were talking. It was a young audience; they were only in their twenties, and they were all. Like in, in the year 2022, you know, all nearly all kids have got a degree. Most kids have got an, a master's degree. Differentiation, therefore, has become a lot more difficult in the job market for these people. So what I said to them all is, well, the differentiation is your own stories. And when I used to do um, the milk round, as it used to be called, for British Gas, and it was hilarious because they'd all come in and you say, well, tell me about your time at university. And they'd all been briefed to say I was captain of the badminton team or I was, and it was really funny, but it was also quite boring if you're recruiting one of these people. So what I, I, I encouraged them to do, even though they were in their, their, their mid-20s, I said, okay, 
go back into your life, find a story, grandparents, mother, father, you know, daughter, dog, whatever you've got, and start to come out, come up with some stories. Uh, and that really helped them, and it differentiates them from everybody else because only you can tell your story. So it's not doing a, a Simon Sinek who just copies everybody else's stories and puts them in a book. He's at, you're actually looking for your own story and sharing that. And I'm not for a minute saying you should live in the past, not at all. But what you can do is you can say, well, look, and, and maybe we'll get to this, but, you know, I didn't know the path I was on. I had no idea. Lots of people tell you, oh, I was clear. I had a Northern Star and I wanted to do this. Very, very few people have ever done that globally. That's nonsense. You fall into things. You're lucky. You're unlucky. You're forced into things. There's a whole lot of things going on in your life from the age of five that you can tell stories about. But the critical thing is it gives you an edge. It can, If you tell a good story about yourself, it can give you an edge. And that goes on all the way through your career. It doesn't stop. You're listening to the Human Performance Podcast by Verti. If you're enjoying this episode, why not join our newsletter? When you sign up, you'll receive a copy of Level Up straight to your inbox every Thursday with the latest tips, tricks, and news about all things human performance. Head over to verti.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. That's verti.com forward slash newsletter. You can find this in the show notes. Anyway, back to the episode. Really interesting. I mean, my second business was actually preparing doctors and nurses for interviews, so job interviews, right. which uh, in the yeah. medical professional was was crazy that there wasn't really anyone providing that type right. of service, which were quite structured interviews. But exactly as you say, Scott, you know, the the answers that people would give would be so generic, yeah. and it's almost like sort of a copy and copy and paste exercise. And that yeah. was you know one of the the first things that I focused on, which was how can you personalise things, turn it into a story. And yeah. you know, my my feeling for that was always if you think back to you know your friendship group, there's always someone who is that entertaining, engaging, yeah. charismatic person who tells yeah. these amazing, you know, very detailed stories mm-hmm. uh, and, and then there's always someone else who who perhaps isn't that engaging and and you know if you don't have a not very engaging person it's probably you, uh, you know, <laughs> in, your, in your friendship group right um, yeah. but but you know that, that was sort of my I guess like uneducated yes. brain sort of thinking about why it was effective but what, why do you think storytelling is so effective in a kind of in a corporate or business capacity well uh, the summary of it is I, I think a good story can act as an empathy engine a good story can act as an empathy engine. What does that mean? That means that if you share a decent story with someone or a personal story and they can tell if it's your story and they can tell you're not BSing and you're being authentic, they will resonate with you. And that's the bottom line. You know, a, a good story that starts well um, and and encourages or show, either shows a weakness in you or shows something that's been you know positive in you, people will go... Do you know that guy, Alec? I, I like him. He's all right. He 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 he's, he had a hard time, you know, when he was trying to study as a doctor, and he hated, you know, molecular biology, but he got through it because he did X and Y. And if people experience that, they 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 resonate with you, and if they resonate with you, they're more likely to to want to work with you. So it's that very simple. Stories can act as an empathy engine. That's an awesome way of putting it, and, and, and to be fair, I hadn't actually thought of it in such a simple way, yeah. which is you know actually perfect because that kind of reflects on what we we're just talking about, <laughs> Richard Feynman. But yeah. you know, it, it's um, in, in my more you know in my, in my kind of like technical medical brain, I always think in terms of like leadership, and um, you know, this is something that we'll we'll talk about in a second. But yeah. you know, 
being a vulnerable leader yeah. is is one of the best ways to lead. You know, yes. telling people uh, transparently what you're worried about. Uh, you know, obviously within reason, um, but but just showing that kind of vulnerability, vulnerability and, and transparency yeah. allows people to sort of understand that you too are human, and, and often that really engages people. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to Feynman, one of his famous stories is about the flower and his friend who was an artist who said, well, you, you can't appreciate a flower because you deconstruct it. And very briefly, Feynman said, hold on, no. Because I deconstruct it means I understand it at a deeper level of beauty. I can still do the aesthetic understanding of the flower, but I understand how it all works together, and that's more beautiful. And I think it's the same with leadership or with anyone. You know, if, as long as I don't think we should all just be telling fluffy stories. I'm not for that either. But if you've got the, the, the background, the understanding, and then on top of that, which is what Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman did, you put a story. People recognise it. They can tell you know your subject, but you're then helping them understand your subject by not being an idiot and trying to overcomplicate things. So that's how I would summarise what the great communicators have done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean just you know, fantastic advice for anyone listening who, who's either in kind of sales or is in, in any leadership yeah. role in, in any kind of corporate anywhere, actually. Um you know, th- th- that aside, going back to your kind of um, your background, which is so varied yeah. and, and, you know, you've sort of pursued multiple sort of different, uh, you know, passion projects as well, like the musical you described, yeah. your kind of focus at the moment is really you know, getting getting the most out of your time on this planet, yeah. as, as really it should be for everybody. Yeah. But, but some people kind of forget that. So yeah, yeah. one of the things I know you talk about in your keynotes is, is you know, measuring, you know, mentoring. Yes. Um, and then really sort of understanding meaning. So w- where do you sort of start in terms of understanding where you are so that you know how you can get the most out of out of your life? Oh, that's a huge question. There's an element of, and you've got to be careful when you're talking about this because there's there is a lot of generic responses to that question. You know, self-awareness, being aware of my inner being, these sorts of statements, which are all fine, but... I think they can they can go down a rabbit hole that I'm not so keen on. You know, I think it's um it goes too far towards the woo woo. Uh, but for me, there is an element of understanding my own story, and therefore, almost in hindsight, it's like a compass, but in reverse. You know, I you know I enjoyed when I did X, and maybe I should think more about that. I might not have noticed it in the moment. Because often you can't, you're too busy. You know, you, you, I mean, they talk about flow states and all the rest of it. But I think looking back and spotting when you were really enjoying something and then building on that could be a very, that's how I got into speaking, to be honest. I had no, I had no idea that there was even a professional speaking circuit. I didn't even know that existed. You know, uh, and, I, and and it's when my mother half said to me, she said, look, you know, you're very good at that. So why don't you do some of that? And I went back and I went, oh, I really enjoy it as well. You know, so I went back and, 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 excavated it I'm trying to continue the metaphor here you know excavated it pulled it out and then looked at it and said right how do I become really good at this and it's where you know before COVID I mean I was looking at every inch of my keynotes it wasn't just about the the way I it was about you know the, the way I used language I had I had a speech therapist helping me deal with projection you know mm. the way I dressed I had someone dressing me a professional dresser who was making suits for me making sure I looked as good as I could do but, but the visuals I was working with artists to do my art for me rather than using anybody else's visuals you know everything every single little tiny my business cards are unique for every speech that I give my, my art 
artist, draw them for me. You know, and and I mean the the, uh, uh, the this sort of, I'm sure one on camera here, but this sort of thing where you the artist will draw the speech for you, and every card for every speech is unique, and it means that the client not only remembers, you know, the cuddly Scottish guy talking about science and whatever, but they remember the way he prepared and that he went the extra little bit because most people don't. It's so easy to get ahead of the game. Is If you just think a little tiny bit, of course, I got all of this from working in, in big business because I used to use the same techniques to win contracts, to win work, to win you know multi-million, like 500 million pound contracts. We won just by applying that simple type of technique. It's so simple, but it's not in any MBA course, Alex. It's not. They don't teach you how to do, you know, storytelling in any MBA course that I'm aware of, and I've researched it. You know, so that's where I would start. Really interesting, and I think you know what you're describing there is also just a real high attention to detail, and again, like an empathy for the the user experience. Really, wow. um, you know, understanding that your audience are going to get the most out of things if you're thinking about the subtleties, kind of proactively rather than just I'm going to get through this talk or I'm going to you know do X, yes, Y, and Z. Yes. Where, where do you think that kind of came from in in your backstory? Was was that something you developed? Did you always have it? Because I often see people um, that we recruit, yeah. and I always try and probe around, you know attention to detail is this person going to go above and beyond yes. in, in sort of what they deliver well, tell you what happened and again it's a story won't surprise you I'm going to tell our story but I was head of human resources and development for Scottish and Newcastle and I was working in a in if you don't know if you know Manchester the Princess Parkway which is a, one of the main arteries into, into Manchester and I, I sat on the board and the manufacturing director was my boss which is quite odd HR reporting to manufacturing but anyway that, that's who was my boss his name was Alan and Alan uh, used to give all the board uh, members jobs to do, projects to do that were not in their area of speciality because he believed in spreading the load. So we understood what everyone else did. And I got the job of basically, well, the, the, most, the most expensive commodity when you're making beer is water, right? And most water you get from the mains. So you pay the council or local authorities money to take the water. You take all the gubbins out of it. Then you put the salts in to make it taste like, you know, Australian water or Irish water or whatever, whatever type of drink you're making and you make your beer. But when your brewery gets a certain size, it becomes critical that you look for other sources of water. And what all the big breweries do is they drill, drill a hole to try and find groundwater. So that's exactly what we did. Uh, and basically, I, I had to convince um, one of the senior directors that we should invest. It was only 10 million quid or something at the time in, in doing that. And I remember um, the, he had the best job title ever. He was called the Global Operations Director, God. And uh, God, I'm not kidding. His name was Steve. He was a great guy. And uh, Steve turned up at my office and my job was to persuade him to give us the money so we could dig this hole effectively. And to be honest, I screwed it up because I hadn't prepared properly. And he walked in and he saw a picture on the wall of me when I used to have long hair and I was at a football ground with I'm a big heart supporter and he's a Celtic supporter. So we started talking and half an hour later, he left and I hadn't asked him about the cash. Now, God doesn't visit very often. Uh, and I got a real, I got a, I, I going over by my boss that night and I went home and I was feeling a bit, I'd let myself down. And uh, mother half said to me, she said, look, phone Jim. And Jim's one of my mentors, and this is where mentoring comes into the story from earlier. And I phoned up Jim, and he swore at me and called me an idiot, and, you know, you should have been ready. And he said, but I'll tell you what you need to do. Next time you see God, make sure you polish your shoes. And I was like, what is he talking about? And what he was talking about was preparing 
I, I call it going full Darren Brown, right? So as pure chance comes about, um, God was coming back two weeks later. So I decided to sit in the room for a, for basically most part of a week planning for how he was going to experience his second visit to my office. Sat down with my HR business partner and we basically planned every step, every moment of his time in the brewery. So the minute he drove in, we had things on the wall about water and, and, the, and the cost of water. When he got into the lift with laminates on the wall about how breweries are using you know, drilling to save money and increase their margins. When he came into the office, my assistant had gone through the, the, the report and she had highlighted, you know those post-its with the arrows? She'd highlighted all the key points with arrows all the way through. And we even knew where he would stand. So it was there. It was, it was where his elbow would be resting on the cabinet. He couldn't miss it. I'd taken the photograph down of me with the football thing on and put it behind my desk. So it was still important, but it was out of his line of sight. And where his line of sight was, the minute he walked into the office, I'd done this flip chart that basically said, you know, if, if we invest in water, there's a big arrow with X percent increase in profit. He walked in, he sat down, and we got the deal. And it wasn't until 15 years later, I kid you not, 15 years later, he said to me, you had me when I walked into the office and I saw that flip chart. And we didn't even speak about it at the meeting. And that polish your shoes thing has been my best friend ever since. I've taken it into major, major deals all over the world, two Olympic Games, you know, that level of, of deal um, where my teams and, and, and myself, we were forensic in how we prepared and if you came to our offices, our win rate was five out of six. We really were a world-class performer because of that. And it was we literally walked around car parks. You know, we, we would investigate everything about them. You know, it would be like, you know, if you're working with a financial institution in London, who works there? Where do they spend their time? What do they do at night? How, you know, every single detail. And that's how we became very successful in that environment. So attention to detail, polish your shoes, preparing for, for the client, not just talking about yourself. Well, I think it's a trait of, of any high performer across any walk of life, you know, whether you're an Olympic athlete and we've had, you know, lots and lots of athletes on this podcast okay. before, or, or whether, you know, you're in, in sort of sales, marketing, any kind of business function, just going that extra mile, exactly as you say, preparing. Yeah. And, and even, you know, in our conversation uh, today, we've, we've talked about, you know, how I prepare for podcasts with my notes, uh, where I sort of do that to make sure I get the best out of, uh, you know, everyone we have on and, and you were using your Excel <laughs> spreadsheet yeah. to look through stories and things like that. It's, it's it really sort of I think differentiates people who are yeah. high performers because they put that work in and because they've got that sort of empathy for you know the person who's going to be on the other end of, of whatever they're doing whether it's a sales call whether yes. it's a podcast um do, do you think that's something that can be taught in, in an HR setting um, the experience of, of you know hiring I think so team? it's not easy though um I mean I, I think when they see it working quite often they need to see it working before they'll take the risk um I, I remember another very short story but we were doing a bid for a, 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 a what they call sap one of the big technology platforms into the royal mail and a lot of people around the table were quite cynical i mean my team when we came in because we were going to help them with the pitch and all i asked them was what do the royal mail do and they looked at me like i was a fool and i, and I said well, come on tell me and they deliver letters right what's a letter and again, they're all sitting there thinking, this is a £350 million deal. What are we doing talking about letters? Come on, bear with me. What's a letter? A letter something you write. Write. Do we write? No, we don't. We type. But we used to write. And believe it or not, what we did in the end was we, we wrote our proposal with two 
beautiful calligraphers actually hand wrote a £350 million bid to the Royal Mail and we got a craftsperson to, to make us an envelope because it was so thick we had to get a craftsperson to make us this special envelope. And we, and we even the person who delivered it got dressed as a post person, right? So every detail. <laughs> and we, we'd won the work before they delivered it. Because all the other people in the in, in, in the roster, these are all world-class businesses, you know, Accenture, Deloitte, Fujitsu, Atos, KPM, all these really good companies. They're all good. It's all the same people, effectively, because they all move around all the time. But we were different. And I think the outcome, to answer your question, sorry, I'm going to slight off your question, but the outcome was everyone in that room suddenly became an absolute avid storyteller because they'd seen it working. They'd seen it working. They could hit their bottom line. They could hit their bonuses. So yeah, you sometimes have to demonstrate to them. And HR, I think, is in a unique position to do that because one of the, and I've, I've just written an article about this actually, HR, one of the things that I used to worry about HR, and I've changed my mind, was that there were, there were very few people experts in HR. You know, very few psychologists, psychiatrists, mm. social scientists. I mean, it's a bit like, well, your, your medical background, it's a bit like doctors that, that aren't qualified to be doctors. HR's full of people like that. Uh, yeah. And that used to really worry me, and it still worries me to some extent because there's a lot of fads in HR because there are not people experts in there. However, I'm changing my mind because one of the things that HR is really good at is attracting all sorts of disciplines to a company, like so, you'd have a, an HR team with a, a microbiologist, an engineer. I'm making this up, you know, a gas fitter and a and a and a and an opera singer. That's not impossible, and because of that cognitive diversity, they can actually see the company in a much bigger way than anyone else can. So it's actually a strength. So I think HR actually is the are the people to help in this particular space. I'm, I'm quite. I, I didn't used to think that, but I have changed my mind recently about that. It's 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 really interesting hearing you you know talk about how to you know basically create yeah. behaviour change systems within an organisation and I think you know you, you've touched on kind yeah. of mentoring you've touched on um, you know leading by yeah. example really which is what that last story was, was very much about what about you know that that final piece of kind of meaning because everyone is very much you know their yeah. own individual um some people are going to find meaning where others don't what's your thought process kind of you know around that um, this is an area that i think is full of nonsense in the media uh there are so many books about this that are that say the same thing um I, in my experience, and it's you know over thirty years now, um, you've got to think. I mean, you know the you know the old triangle, Maslow's triangle. Incidentally, Maslow never drew a triangle in any of his books. It's not what Maslow did. Everybody thinks he did the hierarchy of needs thing. He never did it. He did talk about it, but he didn't. Do it. He never drew a triangle. Um, I think getting the basics right is where I would start. You know, pay people well, make them felt feel welcome, because not everybody. This is a real shock, I know, but not everybody has this great, wonderful target they're aiming for to make their life special. A lot of people just want to make a few bob to look after their family and have a nice private life. That's it. And I actually think that's noble. I have no issue with that. But a lot of companies aim at the more senior people, which is about, you know, wh you know where is your bliss and, you know, what's your driver? And I get that, and I, and I get that at that level, but I think at corporate level, You've got to be realistic and understand what people are really like and what their real drives are. And their real drives are enough cash uh, to have a pleasant life, enough cash to feed my family, go on holiday two or three times a year and feel safe. 
uh, at work. That's it. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. And all these, you know, uh, like employee engagements become so noisy now, it's meaningless. Um, you know, there's a lot of these things have gone completely overblown. Uh, and I might sound quite heretical saying that, but you look at the evidence, it's not, it's not, it's just the, the evidence doesn't support what a lot of these big companies say. It just doesn't support it. So I would start from that. Let's be honest about what people need. Ask them. <laughs> So few companies ask them, you know, what do you need? Uh, and then once you've done that, then you can start to think about the different places in the company that need to help people with meaning or not. And at the more senior levels, well, I I used to think again it goes right back to the start, Alex, about um, used to be about qualifications and about experience. I'm kind of moving towards the attitudinal piece now. Get, give me somebody with the right attitude, and I'll train them. And I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but yeah. certainly at the senior level, if someone's been a, you know, a, a successful director in a company that makes widgets, I would employ them tomorrow in a service business because I know they've got something about them that we can we can learn from, and and that's a, that's another thing that always astonishes me about companies. You spend thousands of pounds recruiting somebody. You get the best person for the job from that recruitment process. Then the you bring them in and you ram them full of how it works around here. The number of companies that actually say to people, what used to work where you used to work is virtually zero. Virtually zero. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it's so much easier to do it that way than for someone else to leave and recruit again. So there is a whole range of things around there that I think we've got the wrong way around. Um, and I know that sounds slightly, you know, um, I don't know, being heretical, I guess, but I don't mind being heretical because you know, I've seen it mm. so many times that I mean, recruitment doesn't work. I mean, if you look, you're better just to put a pin in a page because recruitment is a huge industry. Look at the evidence. It doesn't really work. So why do we keep doing it? Why do yeah. we keep doing it? Um, so, yeah, there's a load we can do, but the meaning piece, I think, yeah, absolutely very important, but keep it at the right level for the right people and ask people what they need rather than telling them what they need. Well, I, th I think, you know, that that's, I mean, there's a couple of really, really key things there, but I think, you know, the, the overarching one is, is again, you know, yeah. listen to your people and, and again, like have Absolutely. empathy for them. And, and I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that I always think about if, if we hire someone new from an existing company, that they've got a huge amount of experience they're bringing, oh, even yeah. if they're like a junior person, because they've been through all the systems, the processes of a completely different world, different environment where they previously worked. And actually that onboarding period is the perfect time to say to them hey look you know yeah. we're not perfect what from your experience yes. has been done well in your last company that we could integrate and and that's when to pull out those gems before they're sort of you know absolutely. three months six months in and they've forgotten how how things yes. outside of the new company yes, work. right um scott it's been an absolute pleasure speaking and, and you know just as we start to start to wrap things up i mean obviously you're just a fantastic storyteller um we, we've touched on a couple of our, our i guess you know synergistic heroes during yes. uh, this recording but um i was just wondering who your human performance hero is who sort of inspired you on your own journey making all these different complex decisions um, and ending up where you are now i'm going to take you back 300 years um, and this is a story about somebody who should be famous, should be, there should be statues all over Scotland about this person, and there isn't. Um, his name was Joseph Knight, and back in 1769, he was a young boy. So I get quite emotional when I tell this story. I, I, you'll get it when I get to the end. There's a reason why I get emotional about it, but he, he was basically captured into the slave trade, um, and he was whisked off as a kid to Jamaica. And right about this period, um, the, basically the Jacobites in Scotland that had been defeated um, 
at the the Battle of Culloden, the all the fathers had been killed by the by the English, but all the sons, because they were rich, were sent away to different parts of the world because the British government wanted their money and couldn't take it, so they had to send them away and, and give, get them doing things to add money for the for the empire. And one of those guys was called Joseph Weatherburn, and he was a he was a, a landowner in Scotland. He was a very wealthy. His father was a very wealthy man, but he moved over to Jamaica and became one of the leading uh, sugar beet. Uh, manufacturers in the world and of course it was so efficient because he based it on slavery and one day he was at a slave trade where these poor unfortunates were being sold you know and and basically it was the young women were being uh, purchased because they could bear children the young men were being purchased because they were strong the old men were being basically slaughtered and the children were being ignored and Weatherburn took young Joseph because he felt sorry for him he looked so sad. His mum and dad had died on 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 route to this uh, to to Jamaica. So over the next ten years, um, Weatherburn used Joseph as his personal servant, and they became extremely good friends. Because young Joseph grew up with him, he didn't know any better, so he, he saw this Weatherburn character as a friend. And Weatherburn was kind, and he educated Joseph, uh, and Joseph got schooled. Uh, to a very high level of, of English capability and very high level of, you know, very well educated. But then the British government uh, decided to drop their aversion to the Jacobites and invited all the all the rich money back to Scotland because they wanted the money. Of course they did. And Weatherburn took Joseph with him back to Scotland. Can you imagine going from Guinea to Jamaica to bloody Scotland? Just the weather must have been horrendous for Joseph. Um, Joseph was now a young man. He was he was in his early twenties, and he'd fallen in love when he got to Scotland. He'd fallen in love with one of the the, the chambermaids, one of the local girls. I can't remember, I think her name was Alice, but don't quote me on that. A young girl from that part of Scotland, and he went to Weatherburn and said, "Sir, you know, um, I love you, and I and I, I it's been a pleasure working for you for all these years. Um, but I'd like your permission to leave and to set up a family with my the love of my life, uh, the young girl from the, the kitchens. And Weatherburn said, no, I own you. I'm not releasing you. And that's the first point. I mean, how dare, he, they, he, he thought they were friends, but Weatherburn had that slaver attitude. He owned Joseph. But Joseph didn't give him up. He went to court and they, and they lived near Perth in Scotland. They took him to the Perthshire court. I said, look, there's just been a huge case in England where the first British slave had been released. I want to be like him, Somerset. I want to be released like Somerset. And the court said no. So Joseph went back and he spent months preparing his case and he took the case to the High Court in Edinburgh and he presented himself to the High Court in Edinburgh in 1778. It was unbelievable. And he lost he then thought, what do I do? So he got in touch with some of the, at that point, Scotland was going through what they called the Scottish Enlightenment. So there was all these amazing brains like Adam Smith, etc. were all working at that time in Scotland. And he asked for help and they helped him with money. And, and he went back to court and he won. He won on that third attempt. And this is the bit I love. That's all. If you Google Joseph Knight, You'll find up like poetry I've written, and you'll find that there's a couple of little books about it, but very little's known about him. But the day he won his trial, he walked out and he disappeared, and I absolutely love that. Grace under pressure, you know. He just he intellectually went against the world, you know, for those 10, 15 years, 
and he won. But he didn't want kudos from it. He didn't want to be, you know, famous. He didn't want to be on Instagram, you know, in 1778. But he just went <laughs> off with his his young lady and he disappeared. No one knows where he's buried or anything. And I think that man should have statues all over Scotland. I absolutely adore that story. And uh, I tell it whenever I can. So he's one of my heroes. Absolutely. Joseph Knight. The, 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 one of the, the the most brave people I think I've ever read about in my whole life. Wow, well, what, what an incredible way to end the podcast appropriately with an amazing story. Uh, so, so Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you today. I think we could probably talk and talk and talk about <laughs> lots and lots of different topics. But um, you know, if anyone does want to find out a little bit more about all the amazing different things that uh, you know you share with people on your keynotes and um, you know through yeah. uh, your different sort of uh, outlets, where can they go to do so? The, the best way to find me is just hash, hashtag Scott Speaks, double T, Scott Speaks. Um, you can then find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Scott MacArthur, where I put all my, my live uh, recordings. I, I do a show called Artifact, which is all about storytelling. And of course, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn as Scott D. MacArthur. There's not many Scott MacArthur's out there, but mine's the one with the D in it. And finally, on, on Twitter, it's uh, at Scott underscore MacArthur. Amazing. Well, Scott, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day uh, and look forward to hearing uh, another story very, very soon. Thank you very much for having me on. We'll appreciate it.